The Selectors Show, Let's Talk About ESG, is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk. Hello and welcome to Cityware Selectors podcast. Let's talk about ESG. I'm Margarita Kirakosian, Deputy Editor, and joining me today is Hortense Bureau, Director of Sustainability Research at Morningstar. Hortense, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Margarita, for having me. One of the biggest uh, developments this year uh, for asset management industry definitely was SFDR introduction. And it started in March, but there is a lot of movement there. And one thing that I've noticed is that initially, fewer asset managers were actually defining their funds as Article 9 and Article 8. And now, closer to the end of the year, we are actually witnessing some upgrades, for example. So what do you think is happening in here? Uh, Should we be maybe on the greenwashing alert because of that? So just for the benefit of our listeners, maybe uh, a bit of background about SFDR, which is the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. It's It's a key piece of the EU Action Plan on Sustainable Finance, which aims to channel capital flows towards sustainable investment. And SFDR really aims to increase transparency by requiring that asset managers uh, provide information about the ESG risks and negative impact of the investments on society and the planet. And of course, the level of disclosure really depends on the way they classify their investments. So you mentioned Article 8 and Article 9. So Article 8 is uh, what we also commonly uh, call light green investments. Uh, These are funds that promote environmental or social characteristics, while Article 9, these are the the dark green uh, funds that uh, aim to, I mean, they they have a sustainable investment objective. So you're right that uh, since um, this piece of regulation came into force in March, we've seen the number of funds classified as Article 8 and Article 9 ballooned. And and they now represent about a quarter of funds distributed in the EU. In terms of assets, these funds now represent 37% of overall EU fund assets. And actually, we predict that uh, these funds will represent around 50% of overall EU fund assets um, within probably the next six months. As managers continue to upgrade strategies and launch new strategies that meet the article's requirements. And we know that uh, many managers already are reporting higher asset ratios and and quite a few already have more than 90% of the funds classified as Article 8 or 9. Now, there are several challenges with SFDR, uh, and I'm going to mention the the main ones. The first one is that asset managers have taken different approaches to product classification based on their own interpretation of the regulation. And that has resulted in a wide range of ESG approaches represented in Articles 8 and 9 funds, 
with similar strategies featuring in both categories, actually. So the Article 8 category is particularly problematic because it's, it looks like a catch-all category in which you find strategies that employ stringent criteria and rigorous ESG methodologies. So there are strategies, for example, that employ a best-in-class approach or um, a focus on a sustainable theme like uh, climate change. But you also find funds that were not marketed as green before, but are now registered under Article 8. So they look like green, like light green funds because they are they are registered as Article 8, but they haven't made any changes to their investment process or, or very little change. Uh, we also found some very light uh, green uh, strategies that apply very light exclusions. Some employ no exclusions at all and no minimum criteria for ESG risks. And a lack of minimum standards really expose investors to a risk of, of greenwashing there. Another challenge that um, I like to mention is that even though the number and the range of options available now to ESG-oriented investors has risen significantly, the level of information given by product providers about sustainable investment strategies and processes remain quite low and not satisfactory. And that's because right now, SFDR level one doesn't require detailed information. And most product providers have not voluntarily disclosed detailed information. SFDR level two is expected to address this, of course, uh, but the so-called um, regulatory technical standards were, were pushed back twice now, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they are now expected um, uh, not before January 2023. So investors will have to wait a bit longer to get more detailed information about ESG products. Cordons, mm -hmm. uh, can we zoom in maybe on the level two tax specifics just to, well, firstly, uh, paint a broad picture of why we need them, why they're there. And secondly, how would that help with defining if the product is truly sustainable, let's say? Well, we'll have to wait what those, um, you know, details, um, detailed information required by the, the regulator um, are, but there, there's still some like, Fine tuning to uh, to do, especially when you when you look at the EU taxonomy, um, because uh, SFDR products will have to to say if they align with the with the taxonomy, and the definition there of a sustainable investment between so the definition of SFDR and 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 the EU taxonomy actually quite vary quite a lot. So we we need to have some some sort of alignment. Uh, there to to help what asset managers uh, find the right data um, to disclose to to the investors. Mm -hmm. And where are the biggest divergent points between SFDR and the EU Green Taxonomy at the moment? Uh, and can we expect, for example, the EU Green Taxonomy when it comes into force actually have a knock-on effect on SFDR categories? Maybe we'll even have more fund categories as a result. It is possible. I mean, this is certainly in a discussion at the EU level. Um, some um, groups, uh, industry groups, and uh, have provided feedback uh, to the regulator 
about about this lack of of clarity and also this I mean this confusion about what uh, the requirements should be really for Article Eight and and, and Nine, and um, and they've said that um, it minimum standards, a minimum criteria would be helpful uh, for the end investor. So. This is something that is being uh, discussed. So we can imagine that it could be some subcategories um, based on alignment with the taxonomy, uh, but that that remains to be uh, to be seen. Hortense, one of the things when you think about regulations in SFDR and what is setting out to do is actually to combat greenwashing, but. As far as I'm concerned, it is quite confusing, and I don't think for now, in the state it is in, it's actually doing that. So in the meantime, especially when we look at the Article 8, which can include potentially oil into it, for all we know at the moment, how can investors and fund buyers specifically kind of like spot greenwashing? Are there any telltale signs? Maybe there are some tips when you're assessing funds that can actually help you to define if this is happening. Yeah, so before I answer your question, I'd like to say that greenwashing is a term that is used a lot nowadays by all sorts of people. But personally, I'm not one that is quick to use the term greenwashing because I really think it's it's a moving target. Um, there, there is no universally agreed upon definition of a green or sustainable. What is sometimes seen as greenwashing may sometimes result from a differing definitions of green and a, and a mismatch really between an investor's expectations and the sort of companies that this investor sees in the, in the portfolio. Now, to avoid any disappointment, what we said to investors is that they really need to do the due diligence. Due diligence is absolutely key. There is a, a spectrum of green different ESG approaches that meet different investor needs and preferences. And investors shouldn't rely on a label or a name. They should ensure they thoroughly understand a fund's ESG objective and investment process. They should also look at the portfolio to check that the holdings are in line with the expectations. Because some investors want to avoid certain activities uh, or sectors like, like fossil fuels, for example, but others don't, 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 don't mind and they would actually rather the fund managers remain invested in such businesses so that they can use their power as shareholders to engage with company management and encourage positive change. So investors can use third-party ESG metrics and ratings. Uh, to assess the greenness of a product or a manager's sustainability credentials. Now, I think in many cases, there isn't a single data point that will give an investor the complete picture. Investors would have to use a combination of data points and metrics to get the complete picture and make sure that the investment aligned with um, the green uh, preferences. Mm-hmm. So does that mean when we speak about labels specifically, for example, that investors can't just take even Article 8 designation for granted and do their work alongside it? So you take it as a one of the input points, but then you have to do your due diligence kind of like to ensure that this actually stocks up on many levels. 
Absolutely, absolutely. As I mentioned before, there is this wide range of approaches and, and, and level of greenness, especially in this Article 8 bucket. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, there's, there's a lack of, of disclosure, as I mentioned, but we have, like for example, at Morningstar, we have metrics and, 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 and data and, and ratings that would still allow investors to compare and contrast uh, portfolios. So this this should use use that or or other other metrics. Mm-hmm. And is that alarming at all? If, for example, an asset management group in its uh, quarterly or annual results states we have, for example, eighty percent sustainability sustainable assets. Sorry, and then the number of like Article Eight or Article Nine funds don't quite add up to that number. If that discrepancy is found at this point in time, is that anything to get worried about or not just yet? Uh, I would say not not just yet, because uh, again, I mean, asset managers were asked to to classify their funds based on their own interpretation at this point. Um, So this may be corrected later on when there's more detail uh, provided, uh, or if there are like some sort of like minimum criteria um, in terms of sustainable investment in in Article Eight or or Nine, that that are provided by the regulator. But at at this point, um, I think it's it's important to find metrics that would allow investors to compare, you know, across across strategies uh, because. Yeah, the, the the lack of standardization of metrics is, is also clearly a problem for, for, for investors, but there, there's still some, it's still better than what we had before. And um, even if they can rely, they can't rely on, you know, the on Article 8 or uh, as, as a label, because it wasn't intended to be a label, by the way, it's just, it's just to provide more disclosure to investors, but it is not a label. There are other labels in in Europe that investors can use, but Article 8 or 9 are clearly not a label at this point. Maybe the regulator will, you know, we will come to the <laughs> uh, the realization that okay, because these are used as, as labels, we uh, we need to make sure that there are minimum requirements. So, um, but at the moment, this is not the case. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like digging deeper into um, other regulations that have to do with sustainability. One thing that I start hearing a bit more is MIFID two and how sustainability fits into that. Well, we are not yet kind of like there because I think that is implemented in August next year from my memory. But what does it actually mean and how does that adapt to everything that we have with Article 8, Article 9 and even the EU green taxonomy? The potential implications of MIFID II for sustainability, I think, are significant. The MIFID II ESG amendments, which, as you said, you know, go live next year in August, require firms that provide investment advice to consider their clients' ESG preferences in addition to their financial objectives. And when considering sustainable preferences, an advisor will need to ascertain the proportion the client would like to be aligned to the EU taxonomy and or the proportion the client would like in sustainable investments as per the SFDR definition, which is slightly different, which I know is a bit confusing, but this is what it is at this point. 
And or if the client would like to invest in products that take into consideration principal adverse impacts. So it's a bit complicated. And advisors will have to introduce questions in the suitability assessment that would help identify their client's ESG preferences. And they will also have to explain to the clients how their ESG preferences for each financial instrument is taken into consideration in the selection process. Asset managers will also be required to assess uh, suitability features of their products when determining the target market. Now, I think this new piece of regulation has the potential really to accelerate capital flows into sustainable and ESG funds, which is obviously one of the objectives of the EU. From the European Commission's perspective, ESG products can play a part in reviving the economy and financial markets, provided, of course, that financial advisors understand their clients' expectations on the subject. So let's see how that plays out. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever, from digesting market and economic data to probing new trends and ideas. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. With a proven past and an eye on the future, we bring the latest thought-provoking investment analysis and diverse ideas directly to professional investors. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk. And we touched a little bit on greenwashing, which is, again, a very broadly based term, which doesn't always help. But one new term that starts cropping up is actually transition washing. And to elaborate a little bit on that is transition is about us reaching our net zero targets by 2050. And it's almost kind of like it's quite connected to the environmental side of ESG because it is about climate change and how we are combating it. Now we've witnessed a couple of fund launches even this year where funds were branded as climate transition fund. And sometimes that also involves funds holding companies that today are some of the biggest polluters, which kind of poses a question how credible these claims are on fund managers' kind of behalf. And secondly, can investors actually at this point in time challenge that in any way, for example? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, this is really the first time I hear the term transition uh, washing. I mean, I've heard about impact washing, SDG washing. So uh, apparently transition washing is, is another term we need to, <laughs> to add to the lexicon. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in the past, as you said, you know, in the past 12 months, we've really seen a surge in the number of climate-focused strategies uh, globally, but particularly in Europe. Uh, and many of these uh, new strategies claim to invest in so-called um, transitioning uh, companies. So these are companies uh, that uh, are not uh, green today. Um, they, they may be high carbon emitters, uh, but they are on the pathway. So they have, for example, made um, a commitment to reach net zero by 2050 or, or sooner. Now, I must admit that right now, uh, there is limited data and metrics that would allow investors to spot uh, what we call, you know, transition washing. At Morningstar, we we uh, 
We offer carbon risk metrics for portfolios, which assess the level of transition risk. But it's a, it's a useful metrics, but it, it doesn't directly assess whether the portfolio is on the right pathway. Um, so here, of course, this is transition washing at the fund level, but there's also the risk of transition washing at the asset manager level with all the net zero commitments that have been made this year. Um, are all the 220 asset managers that have so far signed the net zero asset manager initiative really going to do all it takes to get to net zero by 2050? I think it's a, it's a great question. These signatories commitments are highly dependent on the commitments made by other stakeholders, including governments. And what we don't want to see is asset managers that rely almost entirely on public action to meet the net zero commitments. Instead, uh, because engaging corporates is so critical to the transition, we want to see an, an, an intensification of active ownership programs. A credible stewardship and engagement strategy should include a clear escalation and voting policy that includes uh, filing and co-filing shareholder resolutions, voting against management proposed resolutions, such as director re-elections, and ultimately divestment. If companies are unresponsive to engagement or not implementing the net zero plans. While divestment uh, shouldn't be the first tool to, to use, to decarbonize a portfolio because it doesn't necessarily lead to the decarbonization of the real economy. I think we can all agree on that. It is still a tool of last resort that asset managers should consider using if corporate engagement fails. And I'd like to take this opportunity to mention that our ESG commitment assessment of asset managers at Monistar, in that assessment, we are going to include all the expectations that a group of asset owners published last month in uh, what they call their COP26 declaration. And I actually encourage those uh, interested uh, to check out this declaration because I think in my view, um, a lot of the, uh, the baseline expectations for asset managers make a, a lot of sense. Uh, I'm very interested myself in this declaration. Could you just uh, say a couple of words uh, without maybe necessarily going kind of like through all the pages of the report? W what does that mean? Why, why was it important to put it forward? Well, they, they, they listed um, like eight, uh, eight points, uh, eight um, expectations in terms of what uh, of policies, uh, in terms of disclosure, in terms of uh, strategies. Uh, so these are expectations for asset managers, and they they will um, they will push asset managers really to meet um, to meet these expectations. So, for example, as I mentioned, you know, like asset managers should have a climate strategy. Um, you know, uh, they should have a, a climate uh, a climate policy uh, in the stewardship efforts. You know, they will have to disclose. Uh, how they engage uh, with uh, with companies, you know, like the uh, the objective of engagement, the the method of engagement, the progress they make on the engagement, and also disclose um, the companies that they 
they, they exclude uh, from investments for uh, for um, climate-related reasons. Uh, I think um, I think it makes sense to have asset managers um, uh, be more upfront about um, you know um, naming and, and 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 shaming as well as naming and and and, and praising when they see progress. Uh, I think it's information that is uh, useful for the whole market, and also that allows investors to hold the, the asset managers more accountable, also for uh, for the research and you know, for the for for, for for what they do, uh, and to make sure that you know what they claim to be doing, what they really they really do. You know, they do proper research, um, and they disclose the results of the the research. Hortons, um I think when it comes to ESG claims that are put forward by asset managers, one specific aspect that interests me is when an asset manager is launching an ESG version of an existing traditional fund and or alternatively rehashes one fund, one big fund that has existed for, I don't know, 20 years as an ESG strategy. And here, what kind of I'm personally worried about, if the fund manager has been with the firm for a long time, had his own process, and now all of a sudden there is an ESG team, for example, that comes in and tells him what to do, or kind of like there is some kind of reassessment of how the strategy is run. So can we ever be comfortable with these kind of strategies, for example? And is there a risk that not all of them are genuine at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a, a few uh, strategies uh, launched, uh, as you described, you know, like the, um, it's like a, a, some sort of a spin-off or, you know, they, it's the, the same process as the, the tr- the old strategy, but um, there's like some, uh, they've added some constraints. So most of the time, most of the time it's, it's just like they've added some exclusions. Um, so I wouldn't say that impact, that would necessarily impact the, the process that much. Uh, in in other uh, cases, it's, um, it, is that those managers have been asked to use, you know, um, a larger set of, of, of data. I mean, some you're right. I mean, some are probably using this uh, data more than than others. Uh, but I mean, there's clearly a pressure now from uh, from the top, uh, especially uh, you know after the the DWS uh, story that you know the portfolio managers are now um, asked to evidence you know the level of uh, ESG integration. So we we've seen some of the reports that now portfolio managers are asked to um, uh, to fill in um, or to to write uh, on a regular basis and they have to provide examples of uh, you know how ESG factors inf- impacted the valuation models um, so uh, whether it's genuine or not I really think that uh, it's certainly becoming more and more genuine uh, it's clear uh, for all portfolio managers now that um, you know, they say there's growing demand uh, from investors for more sustainable strategies. So, um, so they accept that this is something they they have to uh, to um, embrace. And interestingly, uh, we are now seeing portfolio managers who were quite reluctant um, a couple of years ago to incorporate ESG into the investment decisions, and who are now actually totally embracing it. Uh, and a few are now even leading. 
the ESG efforts at the firm. So that's that's really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Traditional funds, when I was talking to fund buyers about how they are checking that the strategy is working and is sensible, what they normally do, they don't talk only to the lead fund manager, but also to an analyst and sometimes even keeping them in two separate rooms just to make sure that the evidence actually makes sense on both sides. So what I was wondering, in terms of ensuring that your ESG process is actually what they are, does it help to kind of track down how fund managers interact with the ESG analysts specifically and kind of like how do they, again, maybe incorporate their advice or if not at all. So would that be in any way useful for fund, fund, or fund buyers to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, understanding how the information flows within the, the uh, a management firm is absolutely crucial. Because you could have like a wealth of information in a system, but no one accessing it or even no one discussing it. So when we do due diligence, we want to understand, you know, first the systems uh, that those uh, managers use, um, the type of interactions they have with, I mean, like that there are between portfolio managers and analysts. Like for example, when it comes to engagement, we want to know, okay, who is talking to the company? Is it um, the analyst? Uh, is it um, someone in the in the in a, in a separate engagement team? Um, does the portfolio manager also engage with the company? So I, I'm not. I I don't know if we could say there is a, like a um, a better uh, model or the better setup, uh, but certainly we want to make sure that the information is. Get the right information is getting to the portfolio manager so, because that's the one ultimately who is making the decisions. Um, and uh, a, a portfolio manager that is uh, truly uh, engaged when it comes to ESG uh, and embracing it uh, would want to take part in engagement efforts. I would want to meet some companies, not maybe every single company. Uh, so that's why analysts are there for sometimes. Uh, but uh, we we want we ask them to provide examples of companies they spoke to recently and um, and understand again you know like uh, what progress they they expect from the company what will they do if the company doesn't really make progress so. Mm-hmm. And as we touched on ESG analysts, I think it's kind of like worthwhile to talk about the whole arms race for ESG talent, because we've seen a couple of really high profile head of sustainability hires, for instance, and uh, I think there was one move from 91 to Newton, if I'm not mistaken, but there were many more during this year and last year. And what I'm wondering is actually, do you think we are witnessing inflation and salaries of those high profile specialists? Because especially if they're good, they've been with the industry for a while and they are very few, kind of like the very selected circle, basically. Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's a great thing to see. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm part of uh, this industry and I and I have a vested interest, but for a long time, uh, ESG professionals were not taken very seriously. They, they were sort of uh, ignored, but that has that has changed in the in the past few years, and now they they're put front and center of their organization strategies, and I think uh, their salaries are are totally justifiable. Now. 
what does that mean for asset managers? Well, it means um, higher costs for sure. Uh, they want to hire the best ESG talent in the market. Asset managers are also now buying uh, more ESG data. They're also hiring more technology people to build ESG models. So uh, all this uh, comes at, at an extra cost. But it's possible that once ESG becomes a bigger part of the investment world and more people get knowledgeable about sustainability, ESG experts will lose a bit of their hot property status and their salaries will, will stabilize. Um, they will be paid in line with other investment professionals. Uh, I can see that happen. Now, um, I think uh, another positive that I'd like to mention about the fact that uh, ESG professionals are in high demand now is that they've brought um, a lot of diversity uh, to the asset management industry uh, because clearly there are more women and people from various um, ethnical backgrounds in the ESG space. Uh, the nature of the job, and I would go as far as saying that the purpose of the job has um, historically attracted a certain type of people. And these people are those that are now inspiring the next, next generation of, of, of leaders and, and portfolio managers. Perdance, uh, I think one of the interesting um, things to look at when thinking and talking about ESG is actually ESG integration and where does that fit in? Because I remember seeing that you made uh, comments about it in the past and that in the ideal world, we should probably even move away from this kind of like definition or description if we are truly going for sustainability. So what's your take on ESG integration and if it has place to be in asset management? Yes, I, I mean, this is a term that um, has been used by asset managers a lot, um, I mean, from the, from the beginning. And, and I, I think uh, now people take issue with it because uh, it just means nothing, right? It means it's a very generic term that means you take into consideration ESG factors into your investment decision process, right? So it could be that you are using ESG information to manage uh, manage risks. It could be that you are using um, ESG information to seek um, opportunities. Uh, I think it's uh, much better. It, it would be much better if asset managers really uh, are more specific about what they mean by ESG uh, integration. I think as um, in passing, it is okay to say, hey, we we do ESG integration, but then there's there needs to be another sentence there that says, hey, this is what I mean by ESG integration um, because it means different things to different people. So, uh, but again, I mean, what we discussed so far with um, SFDR and when also what we, we're seeing um, happen in, uh, in the UK with SDR, uh, I, 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 I think, um, I mean, this piece of, pieces of regulation provide a solution. They, they will provide more um, clarity about the, the different ESG approaches that, ES, that portfolio managers use. Um, so, so we'll be fine. We will continue to use the word ESG integration, but then there will something else that will follow and say, hey, this is what we mean. And this is the ESG approach that we use for this particular strategy. Hortense, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Margarita.
The Selectors Show, Let's Talk About ESG, is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk.